this Podbeam, Spotify or Facebook, you're really, really welcomed here in the house of God tonight. It's wonderful that you've come and you set some time aside to worship and to, and to sit under the Word of God, which has a capacity to instill and impart faith into your life. Uh, the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Amen? And uh, that's uh, Romans ten seventeen. So impart faith into your life and, to, and also to fellowship. And, and uh, that fellowship in itself brings vit- vital and vitality and, and uh, it brings a, a healthy Christian living when you, we come together. And uh, me, you and YouTube is not the Holy Trinity. And uh, it's great when believers come together and we encourage one another and build one another up. Coming together regularly, even throughout the week, for prayer, for sharing the word, fellowship, reinforces and girds and strengthens. We strengthen one another when we come together in fellowship. And uh, I'm, I'm uh, encouraged when John came up those stairs uh, the, tonight. It was great to see John here in the house, and uh, I was blessed to see him. It's been my observation over the years that people who are better connected have a less of a tendency when the going gets tough they, people tend to go fishing, amen? Peter, when the going got tough, when he was a Christian and before the, uh, before the resurrection, he went back to his old life and he went fishing. So Peter, when discouraged, went back to what he knew before he met Jesus and we all have a tendency to do that. But fellowship's one of those things that helps one another and that's what we're here for. So in the book of Acts, the new fledgling church or the New Testament church, I would like to think this is like a New Testament church. And uh, so in Acts 2, 4, 6, it says that they met daily. Isn't that amazing? The church met daily. And so continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. In Acts 2, 47, it says they won souls daily. Amazing, eh? All the fruits come together when we do things on a daily. Praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Isn't that such a benefit of, that's come straight out of good fellowship. And in Acts 6.1, it says they cared daily. That's what we like to do. In the daily distribution of bread, the care arm of the church was instantaneous. It wasn't a program, but it was a fruit of their Christian walk. And uh, in Acts 16.5, it says it increased in numbers daily. So the churches were strengthened in their faith and increased in number daily. That's word for word scripture. In Acts 17.11, it says they searched the scriptures daily, as did the, the Berean church. And so they didn't meet just once a week and tolerated one another. Sometimes it can be like that. Sometimes churches, are, sometimes we grind one another up a little bit, like your best friend. But no daily with one accord, breaking of bread, sharing of food, gladness, simplicity of heart, praising God, favour with the people, making room for new people, and the people were strengthened in faith, and so more people came. So look at that. They met daily, they won souls daily, they cared daily, they increased in number daily, they searched the scriptures daily. So, but, uh, but tonight, if you would like, I'd, I'd love if you will turn in your Bibles, and I pray you brought a Bible with you. If you're looking for a Bible, I've got one, a couple, about five or six on the back shelf at the, in the back room there, you're... You're uh, welcome to help yourself there, to go and take one there if you like. And so I'd like to go to uh, John 18, 29 to 38. And uh, we know that Jesus is before Pilate in what could be described as a kangaroo court. So we use an Aussie language here to describe 
the kangaroo court that, uh, that Pilate was running. And uh, so the title of my message tonight is Truth on Trial. And it's a two-part message. I'll bring the second part of this message because I don't want to rush it through. It'll be on next Wednesday. So there you go. You've already got a date for next Wednesday, Mel. Truth on trial. Oh, yes. So they led Jesus from Caiaphas's house to the Praetorium. So this is Jesus only basically hours before the Christian, uh, before the crucifixion. And so they were at Caiaphas's house all night. In Caiaphas' house, I've been to Caiaphas' house in Israel, and Jesus was put into a water, hollowed out water system underneath Caiaphas' house. And I've been in that very, very room. Cold, damp, and absolutely pitch, pitch black. And that's where Jesus was for about six or seven hours. In the, and uh, at dawn, they brought him to the Praetorium, which was the governor's area where he was to be tried. And uh, then Pilate, in verse 33, says, Pilate entered, entered the Praetorium, uh, which was the, his headquarters, and he called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. Uh, what have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom's, my king, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And he goes on to say in verse 37, Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You rightly say that I am a king. This is good. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into to the world, that I shall bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? What a great... So the title of my message tonight is Truth on Trial. What is truth, said Pilate. And uh, the reason I bring this message is because I believe it's, uh, it's of something of infinite value and will grant confidence and trust in your life, especially in these uncertain times. When you turn on TV... Probably in the space of one hour, you'll probably get maybe one minute of truth because there's, there's basically no truth out there. Very, it's almost void of truth. And the, the Bible says in all the, closing chapter, all the closing chapters throughout the gospel accounts, in this dispensation which we now live, young people, this is for us, that the, the deception will be the greatest thing on the earth. Deception is basically an absolute lie and it will sweep the earth. And the th only thing about deception is people don't know they're in it. So how can you know whether you're in the truth? Whether, whether what you're hearing is the truth? Whether what your friend is telling you is the truth? And so this is the major concern of this end time dispensation of where you and I are today. And so that's why I bring this message tonight, uh, truth on trial or the plumb line of truth. An understanding of this in your mind and with a revelation in your heart will remove doubt, unbelief, and allow you to walk by faith, which is actually a command. We as believers are called to walk by faith. Not a walk in the dark, but a walk in the light. Amen? Jesus also states that every one of the truth can hear his voice. But in that kangaroo court, 
in those previous verses, I didn't read those, but it says the chief priests, the Pharisees, then it goes on to say Pilate and the whole crowd could not hear Jesus' voice. Why? And the answer is simple. The truth was not in them, nor were they looking for it. And I've always found if people are desperately looking for the truth, the Bible promises that you will find it. If you have no heart for the truth, you will not find it. But if your heart, you could be well off track, but if your heart desperately seeks the truth, you definitely will find it. You definitely will find it. The Bible promises if you have a heart for truth and you're seeking the truth, you will find it. If you have no taste for the truth, no time for the truth, couldn't be bothered with the truth, don't care, are indifferent, and then you will not find it. Another way of therefore asking anybody, are they saved, meaning are they born again, have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, is are you of the truth? Because if you are, then you can hear his voice. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And the Pharisees and everybody else here couldn't hear Jesus' voice because they had not the truth in them, nor had a desire for it. Jesus said in John 14, 6, in the previous chapter, listen to this. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Many people think there's all these different ways and roads that lead to heaven. All roads lead to Rome. All the roads, whichever road you take, it doesn't matter, make any difference. They all lead to heaven. But nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus made it really, really clear and that's why Christianity sets itself apart from every other thing on the face of the earth because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And so you think, oh, well, there's only one way. And they go, well, ha- that's, uh, that's uh, arrogant to say that. But that's what Jesus said. And as Jesus is the substance of truth, walking in that truth and partaking of that substance imparts life, and life eternal. When you walk in the truth, you walk differently because you have purpose and you have the indwelling presence of God in your life. New Testament biblical truth is found in the person of Jesus Christ. All the Old Testament, uh, I think there's 929 chapters in the Old Testament, 260 in the New, but though all those 929 chapters of the Old Testament point to the fulfillment of one person, And that one person is Jesus Christ. The Old Testament goes from this time to 6,000 years ago. And it all points from Genesis 3.15 to this person, the fulfillment of Jesus coming in this new dispensation of time. We are living in what people broadly call the age of reason. And I think that we're living in an unreasonable age. (laughs) It's called the age of reason. Consequently, we find the world in this great dilemma of having no absolutes. About 35 years ago, uh, people could agree on just about most things, uh, but not so today. And I'm old enough now to know the difference of uh, what life was like. I'm 60 years old now, so began to develop a reasonable sense of reason by about the age of 10 or something like that. And truth and the definition of truth is fought out in the media, in the legal system. And if a full stop in a, on, a, on a contract or a legal document 
is found to be in the wrong place and that which is morally correct is thrown to the dogs for that which is now legal. That's what it's like, isn't it? You cannot no longer make a deal on a handshake. Dave, when's the last time you made a deal on a handshake? <laughs> it's probably a little bit more common out here, but you definitely wouldn't do it in the city. They're all saints out here, that's why, isn't it? We're all witnesses to a legal system at the expense to that which is moral. Isn't that amazing? We have a legal system, but not necessarily a moral system. To that which is right, a justice system which has now given away to a legal system. You say, do we have justice? Well, I don't know. We have a legal system, but it doesn't always dispense justice. Who would agree here would agree with that? It's true, isn't it? We've seen it with our very own eyes. That which is moral and that which is legal no longer have any ties whatsoever. I saw my sister being ripped off years ago, and the bloke says, Oh, it's not personal. <laughs> Well, it was to her. <laughs> he could legally do something, but was it moral? No, it was not. When we receive Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, salvation is received. You receive salvation. It's a free gift. Righteousness is imparted. We don't come to God with our own righteousness, with our own good deeds and all that sort of stuff. We, we wear his robe of righteousness. We don't earn it. It's just there. It's imparted and truth is your purchased possession. Proverbs, which is a book of wisdom, says that buy the truth and sell it not. But in this day and age, there is no absolutes. And if I have a truth, someone will say to you, well, that is your truth. Years ago, there was just the truth. They meant something was the truth, and that's what it was. But these days, people say, well, that is your truth. That's your angle on it. It's all a question of perspective, they say. All a question of perspective. And all this, and the rhetoric and the way they rave on these days. People will use all sort of flamboyant jargon and talk. They will say that I need to contextualise that concept to see if that truth really applies to me. Do you hear all this jargon and, oh, we need to contextualise that. You know, and what framework are we watching? And on and on and goes. It's, it's pathetic to listen to, isn't it? Honestly. And delving into great debates on definitions, rhetoric and endless discussions. And it's absolutely got no substance. Who's ever listened to a politician speak for five minutes and just wonder what he said? They don't answer the question. It's not in their job description. There is what's today what is called a euphemism. And people say, well, that's a big word. I had to look it up myself. But a euphemism, according to Webster's Universal Dictionary, says it's an affected style of prose using an elaborate antithesis. Doesn't that sound like I'm half-educated? But antithesis means a direct opposition of contrast between two things, as in joy, which is the antithesis of sorrow. So what am I leading to here? How does this work out? Giving and Really what it means is giving a good name to a bad thing. It is a very, very an elaborate thing they've been using for about 25 years or longer, and they give a beautiful name, a good name, to that which is actually something that is quite evil. Who's ever noticed that in the last decade or so? But in a light way, we, seemingly, we see seemingly harmless things happen all around us on a daily basis. And the term wicked used for terrific or good Somebody says, how are you? And they go, oh, wicked, wicked. And it means good. Is that true? 
Blokes at the skate park did a, a backflip of whatever they do at the skate park. They say, oh, that was wicked. That was wicked. You see, it's a, a euphemism. It's a good name or a bad name for something that is good. You see that? It's a turning around of something on the head, and it's quite subtle. The other thing is, how was your night? Wicked, really sick, deadly. <laughs> You're getting the drift what I'm saying. They turn things on their head, and they mean the opposite. But what about when it's more insidious than that? It seems okay when we're having a bit of fun. How was your meal? Oh, it was disgusting. Meanwhile, it's polished off. You haven't left a crumb on the plate. You said it was disgusting. I use that term myself. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I'm going to read this, seven verses. This was written uh, uh, by the Apostle Paul. He used to murder Christians for a, for a good time. And, and then he had an encounter with God. And he turned in, from a murderer to a missionary in the space of about three days. And then he became the greatest proclaimer of the gospel in the whole of the New Testament. He was the man who brought the gospel to Europe throughout thousands of years of paganism. And the success of the West was the bringing in of the gospel. And he says, know this, that in the last days, the last days means this end time dispensation of period, which we're in now. And we have been in this dispensation of period for 2,000 years. But this reference here is the end of end of days, which is reference to where we are now. And he says, perilous times will come. And uh, men will be lovers of themselves. Have you been to the gym lately? You've got wall-to-wall mirrors and there's not enough of them. <laughs> men will be lovers of themselves. Blokes these days spend more time on their hair than the ladies. There's something not quite right about this picture. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, this is quite a list, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Listen to this, uh, verses 5, 6 and 7. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. In other words, they seem like a, they're moral sort of, they want to uh, speak about, but it's their own morals. It's not God's morals. It's their own virtue signaling. And we hear plenty of that from Hollywood on their awards presentations nights. And for such people, he says, turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households, make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. Verse 7 always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Oh, it's horrible stuff, isn't it? Never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so when we're looking at this, always learning, blasphemers, that Greek, that Greek word there, theologian Rick Renner says um, that word there is a blasphemy, not of, not of Christ, but a blasphemy of the language itself. And that's what we're seeing here even in Australia today, an absolute blasphemy of the language itself. Nothing means what it's supposed to mean. You can't say a sentence without putting so many expletives in it. It's an absolute blasphemy of the language itself. And uh, our inability to describe, even things like we describe uh, God as awesome and majestic in the Word of God. That's what it says, God is awesome and majestic. 
But doesn't that whole concept of God being awesome and objective mean absolutely nothing when we described a Macca's burger as awesome? How do you describe plastic like that? <laughs> or, uh, or chicken nuggets when a DNA test would prove that there's no chicken in it. And we still described it as awesome and majestic chicken nuggets. It's, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? You see, it's a blasphemy of the language and we lose the value of awesome, the awesomeness of God. And a, and a Macca's burger? Descri using the same language, we have lost all context of our language. And so what about this one? A safe schools program. Who's heard of safe schools program? It's the absolute, it's social engineering advocating all forms of lifestyles contrary to thousands of years of what was termed acceptable. And yet in these last 12 months, all of a sudden all this other stuff is acceptable. My father's generation put a man on the moon, but this generation puts a man in a woman's toilet. We have come a long way, haven't we? You see, see what's happening here? And we just sit here and it, it's just like we're a frog in boiling water, slowly getting heated up, slowly cooking heated up till we, till we get cooked. Gender-bending lifestyles promoted under the banner of what we all want. Sure, we want safe schools, but do you see how all the agendas have come in under the guise of these euphemisms, all these beautiful names which are absolutely opposite to what they say? Of course we like the sound of equality in our marriages. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? Doesn't it sound beautiful? But marriage equality has come to mean something absolutely entirely different. Against the biblical laws of God. Family law and protections and the protection of rights, although sounding reassuring in so many ways, also mean the erosion of and the, the, the testabilization of the family structure and the authority, uh, sorry, the destabilization of family structure and the authority of parents. But it all comes under family law and protections. You see, they use euphemisms, which is an, a beautiful name, a good name for that which is not right. And that's why I bring this message today on uh, the uh, truth on trial, because that's exactly what has been happening even in this last decade. And for people who are coming into their teens, they've not seen what a, how we got to this place. But you see people there who have come from decades and decades before, they have seen it proceed over a period of decades, and uh, it's just amazing. It began in the 1960s, and it began with the removal of the word of God and prayer from schools. Prior to this, the West predominantly had what you would call a biblical worldview. I want you to turn on your intellect a little bit right now and think this through. A biblical worldview didn't mean that you had to be a Christian, but you saw things through the, through the lens of biblical truths. And the whole world, and in particularly the West, had what you would call a biblical worldview. You saw things through a lens of the truth, through the Word of God. But what has happened is the Word of God has been removed from our, from our commonplace, uh, uh, from our governments, from our schools. It's difficult. It is, we've got a whole generation of biblically illiterate people all through our schools, I know and met quite a number of people who have never been to church in their entire lives. I work with a young girl who was 21 years of age and had never been to a church. She knew that I was a pastor and she said, I'd love to come to your church because she said, I've never been to one. 
You see, a whole generation of people have been robbed of the truth, parents making decisions for their young ones, and the, the Bible is, uh, Jesus does not force anybody to believe. He gives, he is a gentleman, but he believes that the gospel should be offered to everybody that they can make a decision for themselves. If you reject the, for, the truth for yourself, that's okay. But when you deny even your own children the ability to even hear the truth, that is a dangerous position, amen? And uh, will you stand before your throne of grace with your children when they have never received Christ because you influenced them not to receive Christ? Or it's a dangerous place to be. People need to be, make up the decisions for themselves. I've been a Christian now for 30 years and it was the best, best decision that I ever, ever made. And so this Second Timothy chapter 3 describes a people who have become what you would call hedonistic, heathenistic, and humanistic. And if you hold on to those views, they're also hell-bound. But it's their choice, amen? We never rob people the choice that they can make for themselves. But we're, always, we're coming to a generation now that who are always learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Paul writes in Romans 8, 7, because the carnal mind is at, at enmity, which means it's at war against God. Our natural minds, until they have been touched by God, are at war with God. And I was at war with God up until I was 29 years of age. I had the I reckon my mentality. A good old Aussie guy. Did anything and everything but was a good bloke. Amen. But really, I had no morality, really. But I reckon this and I reckon that. But what does the Word of God say? That is the truth. That is the plumb line. Oh, I got this here. That's the plumb line. The Word of God is the plumb line by which everything is measured. I'm a carpenter by trade, and I still recall as a young apprentice, they don't do it so much these days, except when we're building perhaps a, a, a house on the side of Castle Hill, you would have a plumb line on the building site. And when I hang that and there's no breeze, you can measure everything to this plumb line and it is true. Everything is true. And the word of God to humanity is the plumb line of truth to which everything else can be measured. I can tell you that ABC is not the plumb line to which you want to measure truth, nor is SBS. But the plumb line of the word of God is something that you can trust and these days, we are looking for people, we are looking for things to place our trust in because all around us is sinking sand. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 5 tells us how God's people, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, his vineyard had been given everything and yet they had produced inferior wild grapes. For the sake of time, actually, I'll, I'll just quickly go there and I'll whisk through it. I don't expect you to go there. And, um, and there are, I think, six woes. And uh, God was expecting, because he had blessed these people, that they would produce good grapes. They would produce good fruit in our lives. And because he had blessed them so abundantly. But what we have seen in the West in particular, and even in Asia now in this last decade or 15 years, when prosperity has come to Asia, they have been ripped out of the jaws of poverty and placed into a place of prosperity. And uh, we could see that in South Korea. The biggest church in the world was one and a half million people at Dr. Yongi Cho's church. Who's heard of 
uh, Dr. Yongi Cho's church. One and a half million people. 33% of South Korea was Christian. But what happened is all the abundance of prosperity came into South Korea and it was redeveloped and, and uh, in huge investment came into there. People became wealthy again. People were swimming in money. And what happens? They turn away from God. And so the blessing becomes a curse. And that is what's happened to our lifestyles here in Australia. Our blessings. God has abundantly blessed this people and this nation. But in doing so, people have, people have turned away from God. And they, pride grips the heart of people very easily. Pride can grip my heart and says, Oh, has not my hand made all these things? We don't recognize it, that it is the blessing of heaven. The blessing of heaven has been upon Australia. Look at out here. We scratch away six inches of soil and we've got the largest coal deposits in the world and we reap the benefits of those without having to do a thing. The royalties and taxes on the coal industry has blessed this nation. Was that involved with our intellect or was it just a deposit from God? We know it comes from God. And, uh, but Isaiah 5 verse 20 when I was talking about euphemisms and things like that, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. In other words, things are turned on their head. And this is what, I'm old enough to know this is what has happened. It goes on to say, Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. In other words, it's turned upside down. And it goes on to say, Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That is what's happening. And uh, we need to be aware of it. And so, Deuteronomy 8.18, God warned the children of Israel even before they went into the promised land. And he, the God had said he would bless this people. And he says, remember it is the Lord your God who gave the ability to get wealth. Remember, when the finances start pouring in, remember it is the Lord thy God who gave us the ability to get wealth. So, in Amos chapter 7, it's an interesting thing. I recognize that Amos is the seventh prophet in the book of the prophets. And you go to chapter 7 and verse 7. So you've got 777. For those who know the numerics in the Bible, 7 is God's number. And he says, Behold, the Lord stood on a wall made with a plumb line. There it is again. They stood on a wall which was made with a plumb line. In other words, the wall was made true. It was, and God was set, uh, was to set a plumb line in the midst of the people. So God aligns that true wall in the midst of the people. God is setting a plumb line before us today. This word of God is truth, and you can trust it. You can absolutely trust it. Does it always make sense to you? No, it will not. But hang in there, and the Lord will reveal to it at the appropriate time. And he says, and they were to be measured, not by what they thought, not by public opinion, not by their own opinion. What about what was popular? No, we don't measure anything by what is popular. The Bible says that narrow is the gate that goes to heaven, amen? Broad is the way that goes to destruction. In other words, where the multitude are going does not make it necessarily right. In fact, in the eyes of God, if you see the multitude going a certain way, you can generally be rested assured that it is the wrong way. So public opinion is not what is popular or culturally acceptable. That's a good one, isn't it? 
Some cultures say it's all right to have five or six wives. In fashion, or, or uh, what a, a lot of people say, what is progressive? Progressive thought now teaches us this. I have found that progressive thought is actually regressive. It is actually harmful to most people. It is harmful to most people. Progressive thought never gets people anywhere. And you say, but you see, truth is not subjective. You go to university and they say, truth is subjective. That's what, exactly what they will say. But the Bible says that truth is not subjective. This truth here was set down 6,000 years ago, and this here is still the plumb line of truth to us today. This here, this book here, is more up to date than the Australian newspaper that came to your doorstep this morning. And so, you see, truth is not subjective. It's not subject to space. It's not subject to time. It's not subject to opinion, nor age, nor dispensation, to people group, or the big one today is my culture. My culture reigns supreme in a lot of households these days. My culture, and and you have to say, uh, Jesus' culture is opposed to every culture. That puts it pretty simply, doesn't it? Jesus' culture uh, is an affront and is a rock of offence. The Bible is a rock of offence to every teaching that is out there. And that's why you come to God, you surrender to him, but the blessings that come... So, but I like the truth and sell it not. I like the way the Bible speaks. It says things like, go to the ant, you sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. It doesn't mess with the truth. It just explains it just straight out like that. It doesn't uh, uh, sugarcoat stuff. If, if you're out here in the bush, you just want the truth, amen? You don't want all the flamboyant rhetoric. Aren't you sick of it? Go to the Bible and it will speak directly to you. Go to the Spirit of God and in your prayer life, if you have an ear to hear what Jesus is saying, you will hear what God wants you to do. And I want to say the steps of a good man, the steps of a good woman can be ordered by the Lord if you just hear the voice of God. And it's not that he's not speaking, it's just that sometimes we're not listening. He is speaking. Will I do this or will I do that? Will I invest here or do this or do that? And so I, I like, uh, I like the, and sometimes I, I liken it to the way uh, sometimes an Aussie bloke will speak on a job site. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Being an Aussie, we're, we wouldn't say it like that. We'd say, listen, mate, you were born with a lazy eye and it spread to the rest of your body. Now get up and have a go, you mug. Many hands make light work. Who's ever heard people talk like that on the, on the job site? I like that because it's direct. It doesn't, it's not covered with rhetoric or anything like that. It says, get in there and have a go, you mate. You've you got a lazy eye and it's spread to the rest of your body. Many hands make light work. Get in there and have a go. The Bible's like that. It speaks direct. And it calls, if you're not doing the wrong thing, it doesn't th- say you've got bad habits. It calls it sin. <gasps> Shock. The Bible calls that stuff that we do that doesn't line up with the way. And, and God has called these things sin so that we could repent, not just verbally, but do a 180 degree turn and walk the opposite direction. That is true repentance. Walking exactly the other. And the thing is, when you make a decision to repent, that's go the other way, the Holy Spirit will help you walk the other way. You think I'm, I'm swimming against the tide, but the Holy Spirit is now with you. And if you ask the Holy Ghost, he will be with you wherever you go. It is a divine help. The, 
the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete or the helper. And so I love the word of God. It's not ambiguous. Uh, so tonight I'd like for us all to come back to something that is rock solid that you can trust. Amen. In this time of great deception, and it's only going to get it worse. I'm telling you, this is the absolute thin edge of the wedge. And particularly young people, the things that are going to come upon the earth, the Bible speaks about it in the, uh, in the book of Revelations. And I tell you these things not to scare you, but to prepare you. And this generation is not known for being resilient, but I want to say the church of the living God in this end time dispensation, in this end time dispensation will be a strong church. And when you come together in fellowship, you're like one stick added to another stick, another stick, another stick. You can't break a bunch of sticks all strapped together. And a good fellowship will strengthen you and you will not be broken and you will be resilient in the days in which we are coming upon. We are coming upon a time called the, the Great Tribulation or the Tribulation Period. It will be a seven-year period and it will be the worst the world has ever seen. I say this once again, not to scare you, but to prepare you. Amen? And you will be strong. You will be strong. The Bible tells me that the church will be strong. But we will be strong as we come together. People say, I don't feel like going to church. And I don't feel like this. And I feel like... I tell you what, it's going to be for your benefit. And your greatest friends. I mean, you look around. These are the people who you're going to spend time in heaven with. Amen? It's going to be great. It's going to be good. It's going to be tough. There's some great times. But I tell you what, the signs and wonders and miracles that the book of Acts speaks of, we will be moving in a dispensation of time which will pale, which the book of Acts will pale into, into insignificance almost. Because you will see healings, amazing healings. You'll be see the provision of God. You will see the dead raised to life. You'll lay hands on the sick and they will recover. You'll speak to the people and they've never heard of Jesus in their whole life and they will receive Jesus. There will be such a thirst for peace. And the, and the greatest, uh, the most amazing commodity in this end time dispensation will be the lack of peace throughout the whole earth. And in the midst of the storm, believers in Jesus will have a, a commodity that is called peace, which everybody will want. And when they see you in the midst of the turbulent times which is coming upon the earth, you will have peace over your life. You will not lose your peace. I don't care what is happening. There will even be, uh, there will be shortages of food. It was about uh, eight years ago I prophesied in the Mount Louisa church years ago. I used to do healing meetings there. And I prophesied that in a not too distant future, the our supermarkets, although very, very modern, had very little food on the shelves. And there wasn't chaos or anything, but people in this dispensation, I'm even seeing it today. I went into IGA and there was hardly any bread. I went into the Woolworths the other day and I could not buy eggs. I'm thinking, what's going on here? Who's, who's experienced that themselves? I have. Uh, when I had the last men's breakfast, I had to pre-order the hash browns because, like me, I talked it up a bit. And I said, oh, I'm going to have hash browns and we're going to have this. And we're so I, I couldn't go back on my word. But I had, and the Lord said to me, go and get the hash browns. This was a week before. That's how the Lord speaks to me. I just listened for what God's got. He said, go on and get the hash browns. I'm thinking, why would I want to get the hash browns now? It took me a week to get them in. 
Here in Charters Towers, there was no potato products for that entire week. And so that's what's coming upon the earth. But I want to say, the world right now is on a slippery slope. Their foot shall slip in due time, said Moses in Deuteronomy. God said to him. And he says, it's a not if, it's a not, a, it's not a not, a not maybe, but it shall slip. Amen? And uh, walking across, we are walking across what you would call a rotting parchment of lies and deceit. And uh, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That is the age in which we live. Second Timothy chapter 3 will give you the mindset of this end time dispensation. Matthew 24, 25 gives you the physical attributes of the earth, which will be earthquakes, wars, rumors of war, pestilence, disease, and so forth. But truth is not a doctrine, and it's not to be found in a book except one. Truth is not a science. Truth is not a philosophy or a moral law. But truth is a person, and that person is Jesus. Isn't it amazing? I come to the whole of my message, really, to say that truth is just not a doctrine. It's just not something that we find down the police station because it's the laws. We look at our modern laws and we know that there's a lot of, there's not, we're exempt from truth almost. But truth is a person. If, Jesus, if Jules would just come to the keys for just a moment, uh, Jesus said, if, a man's, if any man comes to me, I will no wise cast out. And you may say, I'm not perfect. This God thing, I've never experienced Jesus before. I've never experienced God before. My life is wayward. I'm off track. I know I am. But I just say, when I was coming to Jesus when I was 29, nearly 30 years of age, I said to the Lord because I knew I was in a mess. But I tell you what, your mess becomes a message. My mess became a message. Because the Lord takes zeros and turns us into heroes. He takes little people like me. Five foot two, eyes are blue. <laughs> and he just, he just transforms your life. And all you've got to do is ask God in. Ask Jesus to come into your life. It's not complicated. And I thought it was. And I thought, I, I've got to get my life right. I, got the, I knew God was holy. And I thought, how can I come to a, whole, to a holy God? And I knew well, the stuff that I did in my life, I was far from perfect. And then I thought I waited and I hung back. And after a while, I realized I didn't have the strength to live a righteous life without Jesus. Because Jesus is your righteousness. You wear a robe of righteousness in heaven, but it was given to you and it was Jesus' righteousness on your life. It's not your good deeds. You could help at the Salvation Army every day of the week in the soup kitchen and still miss heaven because you're relying on your own good deeds. But Jesus said, come to me just the way you are. Bring your sin. I dealt with sin at the cross. I died for your sin. And when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes into your life, which is a promise. The Holy Spirit is God, the Holy Spirit. And the power of God comes into your life to live a holy life. And that was the mistake that I made. I stopped. I was not coming to God because I thought I had to get myself holy. Not realizing that is He is the one who makes you holy. Amen. Is there anybody here who would like to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Today is a good day for you. You are amongst friends. 
And there are many, many people listening online all over the place now. And you're perhaps listening and, you, and I pray, just if you wouldn't mind just standing to your feet now. And we're coming probably to the most sacred moment of this whole message. And uh, I'm just going to pray. Uh, uh, 30-odd years ago, I prayed this prayer. I wet my carpet on the bedroom floor with my tears because I was so sorry because I knew that I'd broken the heart of God. And I realized that Jesus didn't just die on the cross for all the world, but he died for me. And there was a personal transaction that took place. And I made Jesus, I knew he was the Lord, but I made him my Lord. And that is all that, religion can't give you that. Church can't give you that. Christian Outreach Center can't give you that. But Jesus can give you salvation. I'm just going to pray a simple prayer. And if you pray this in your heart, truthfully to yourself, your life will be transformed. Jesus, Jesus. I come to you now. I've been and am a sinful person. I ask that you forgive me of my sin. I receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Wash and cleanse me with the blood of the cross. I receive the Holy Spirit into my life. To empower me to live this victorious life. To empower me to live this victorious life. I thank you. I thank you. That I'm a new creation. I'm a new creation. In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Just wherever you're standing now, I'm just going to pray the blessing of heaven over your life. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom, peace, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.